Behind the Bite podcast is part of a network of podcasts that are good for the world. Check out podcasts like the Full of Shit podcast, After the First Marriage podcast, and Eating Recovery Academy over at practiceofthepractice.com backslash network. Welcome to Behind the Bite podcast. This podcast is about the real life struggles women face with food, body image, and weight. We're here to help heal, inspire, and create better, healthier lives. Welcome. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. So today we have a really dynamic show. We have somebody here who's not only a professional who helps people who have mental health illnesses, but somebody who has gone through a journey herself with mental health illnesses and she is here to discuss openly her own journey and path. And I think, you know, anybody who's willing to do that on this show, I'm, I'm really grateful to because as I've said before, I think it's really powerful when somebody does that because, you know, anyone listening maybe can relate or it really can help somebody um, to understand that, oh my gosh, I'm not alone or, um, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that what I was going through is actually something that I can get help for. So um, I really want to just delve in and and, uh, introduce our guest and have her uh, come on and talk about uh, her own history, her past, and uh, all the work that she's doing now to help people. Um, So with that, I'll just do an introduction. So you know who it is. Uh, Joelle Melitas is a uh, well-known author, keynote speaker, and psychotherapist. Her expertise includes trauma, PTSD, eating disorders, military psychology, and much more. Her career highlights include being a guest speaker on ABC 60 Minutes, Beyond the Headlines, authoring a TED-Ed video on PTSD, and several outstanding achievement awards for top female executive. Joelle's passion is helping people find empowerment by discovering how to be their best, but not perfect, self through authentic skills-based self-discovery. Her goal as a psychotherapist is to provide feedback and interaction that allows clients to grow through informed, healthy, and compassionate decisions. Well, Joelle, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So you have a really interesting uh, history and backgrounds. I'm wondering, would you mind sharing with us a little bit about yourself and you know how you ended up here as a therapist in this place in your life? Yeah, it, it's it's such a an convoluted story, so I'll try and make it quick and concise. Um, my so my background actually, I was a ballerina by training and a dancer for over 20 years professionally, mm-hmm. um, and I worked on stage and then I worked in multimedia and film and commercials. So a lot of aesthetic based um, pressures. And, you know, I ended up teaching university. I I had um, postgraduate degrees in in education and dance and in those areas and and had a lot of injuries and found myself uh, newly newly divorced with a one and three year old and went, okay, well, being a dancer and um, being at university is not necessarily going to pay the bills in Silicon Valley. I'm in California and mm-hmm. went, all right, what am I going to do? Um, and it, I say, and therapy sounded good. And there, there's truth to that. I think part of it was I was really doing some very intensive therapy for the first time. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I 
as much as I, I appreciated the process, it was a very painful one. Mm-hmm. And I was also really interested in, okay, what does that mean? And, and this idea of trauma and growth and how do I work with my own stuff? And so I took a psych class and I ended up finding that I was in graduate psych school and spent a very long time there and uh, parlayed into being uh, basically a trauma expert. But my dissertation was working with broad spectrum eating disorders, PTSD and trauma and and from um, an addictions model. So that's what parlayed me into being a therapist. Wow, so quite a trajectory. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I always joke and say, you know, we can draw the dots. I was a ballerina by training and then I went to study eating disorders. And I remember, you know, one of the very first clinical supervisors I ever had who I adored looked at me one day and she said, are you sure you that's the work you want to do? Um, can can you manage all of your own triggers and mm-hmm. and responses um, and keep it about the patient and not about you? And I I laugh about it now. And I think at the time, that was the biggest challenge for me was how do I separate out my own story and what I was going through, but also my healing journey with Mm -hmm. what my clients were experiencing, because I, in a lot of ways, I wanted them to have that same growth. And some did and and some didn't. And so that was, um, that was a whole nother level of learning how to work with not only my own trauma and story, but also being able to sit with other people's. Right. And that's, I think, uh, you know, I've talked about this before on the podcast, but I think that's the one thing I was afraid of myself too, is, you know, that myth out there that, you know, we're all wounded warriors and we bring our own stuff into the room. And that was my fear too. I said, I don't want to treat eating disorders. Like I thought that at first because of that, but then I realized like, I want to be that therapist I never had when I was going through treatment, right? The one that you know, I can relate to and really go, wait a minute, like they get it. Um, so I think there is power in the fact that you've had some experience yourself. Um, but being mindful, as your supervisor said, of like making it about the person in the room and not your your own stuff. So very wise. Yeah. And it and it helped. And I think that was the biggest struggle when I, you know, y- years and years ago when I first started was exactly that, which is, I don't, I don't know how to do that. And I wanted the therapist for my clients that I didn't have. I um, passed, I was a ballerina. And so, you know, there was a lot of just this presumption of, well, you know, yeah, she's, she's this body type or, oh, she looks like that, but you know, this is what she does. And there was a lot of, I think, denial and and that passability, right, where I could hide in the shadows and didn't get the care and treatment that I needed until I was starting to move out of my career and falling apart. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, okay, there, there's so much more to, th- to this. And, and in retrospect, I wonder what life would have been like if I had had different care uh, as a young, you know, as, as a young teenager, and then kind of through my career and through through adulthood, not that I think that that would have changed the injuries and, and the trajectory of where I ended up. But I did think about that in the beginning of what what would that look like? Interesting. So curious, like you were a ballerina, do you looking back, do you think there was a lot of um, disorder eating and um, a lot of behaviors just in back? with people who were uh, around you in general that led to maybe you also struggling with that? 
Yeah, absolutely. And and without being, you know, triggering for anyone who's who's listening, um, it was also accepted. And so mm-hmm. there was a practice of um taping and weighing in and food logging and um what was acceptable based on, you know, height and and the role of the show, right, or the ballet. And so you know, there were many times I joke, I'm five, two and a half hippie and mouthy, and that doesn't necessarily make for really great ballerinas. And so, you know, there were a lot of times where um, I wasn't getting parts um, and and it was always about, and I say always without being um, dramatic, you know, about the aesthetics. And so I felt like there was this love-hate relationship with ballet, but also with my body. I couldn't get, I couldn't be six inches taller. I couldn't, you know, be the certain um, dimensions that that at times they wanted me to be, and it felt like this constant battle. And an inter, and then I was, I felt betrayed by my body, you know, because it wouldn't do what what I was being told it needed to do, and I was having a hard time making it do that you think that 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 mentality or the messages you were being told or the rejections in terms of not getting parts led to some of the injuries because you were trying so hard to to be better or to match up with what you felt like was wanted or needed or the criteria that was set yeah absolutely and and I think part of that was that was also accepted Right. You know, oh, if you, you know, I, I actually was just having this conversation um, with with somebody earlier today and uh, we were talking about being an elite athlete. Right. And that that pressure of every time you miss practice or every time you, you don't you know perform to the level that your coaches want you to. And I, I remember being a child and then again, as a, as a young, young person entering in this field, with a ballet mistress saying, you know, if you miss a day, you miss a month. So if you're going to be sick for two days, don't bother coming back. And I didn't, I didn't log that as being traumatic for me um, until I was in therapy and starting. And and it took even even then, it took a long time for me to kind of un, uncover that message of, wow, I have to be perfect, and my body has to work all the time. So. You know, it was accepted to dance when you didn't feel good. And if you had, you know, I had stress fractures and broken toe, like that was just normal. And it was part of, you know, paying your dues. And, you know, the the message was, if you can't do that, well, don't bother. Not take the time to heal. I think the world of ballet has changed significantly um, since I was dancing. This was a long time ago in, in the, the, you know, late 80s and 90s and and I think we we know a lot more. Dancers seem to be healthier. So you know, as as things are growing, I I can't comment on what the messaging is now. But definitely, when when I was a kid and and going through this, um, that was that was what was accepted. Wow. So I, as I'm listening to you, I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, the lack of like self care, the lack of you know compassion for yourself and just the ability to say like, oh my gosh, I'm in pain. I'm hurting. I need to heal. I need to take care of myself. Like, wow, these standards, like the perfection, you know, and that's so much a part of eating disorders as well, just needing to be perfect. And so, you know, you use this word trauma. Um, 
you know, and, and for you to be aware of that when you started to go into therapy. Um, I'm wondering if people listening going, wait, why does she use the word trauma? She's talking about this, right? Um, did you question that yourself too? Absolutely. And I had, you know, what what we kind of refer to as big T trauma. Um, you know, I I definitely had that um, going into therapy from some, some other things. Um, I didn't understand the little T traumas. And so there are all of these things um, like that experience, right? Of being told, hey, if you're sick, you know, and you're going to be off for more than a day, don't come back at, you know, or, you know, I would hear um, for every rehearsal you miss, it takes you four weeks to get back. Mm. And so these things where um, it didn't register as trauma at the time, but it absolutely leveled my my self-esteem. Um, I had a lot of guilt and shame around um, not being good enough, not, you know, letting people down, not being able to be perfect, not performing to the level that people were expecting. And it sounds so narcissistic when I say that now. And at the time, the fear was, well, if I if I'm not good at this, then what does that say about me? And am I going to be unlovable? And and so understanding that those things became very traumatic because it really compromised my ability to believe in myself and that that core ego strength. And so I had um, a lot of these these episodes. I always say they kind of like our Legos, right? They just stack one on top of the other. And so they're these little traumas that are very painful where um, that guilt, the shame, the blame, the betrayal um, came up and, and would bubble up. And I didn't really know what that was. And I just equated that to, well, I'm just not perfect enough. And mm -hmm. so the eating disorders were a way to control feeling that guilt and shame, right? It's, well, if I can control one thing, I'll be successful at that. And I can, and I can, you know, in air quotes, be really good at that. And mm -hmm. if I'm really good at that, then I don't have to feel all this other stuff. And I didn't realize that all the other stuff, these little traumas eventually would, would stack, would stack up and the dam would break. Right. And then all of a sudden I was in the trauma, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm wondering if throughout your therapy, you started to identify what all these little teases you call them little traumas were um, because it sounds like at the time you were experiencing them, you didn't really know what they were, what you were going through. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, little T trauma in relation to um, relational things typically, right. Um, you know, being yelled as, as a child, if that's somebody's experience, right. Is traumatic for some people, not traumatic for other people. Right. And so it's, it's how we, we log these experiences as individuals. And so for me, it was, there were so many things that that were multifaceted that were these little traumas um and some of it was home some of it was school some of it was being in the dance world and then some of it was stuff that i was doing to myself and that was the hardest one to to really work through is the eating disordered behavior even though it was acceptable mm -hmm. in the world that i lived in and my parents um my parents were not dancers, you know, that that was not their background. Um, and so I think they just, they, you know, she's happy, she's, you know, 
performing at school. She, you know, she's she's doing really well in life. She loves ballet. You know, she's like, she's good at, right? Like, I think they were just mm -hmm. looking at this as, well, there's nothing, the doctor isn't saying she's sick, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and this is part of being in that world. And so, you know, I, they didn't necessarily know what they were looking at, right? And again, it wasn't until years later where it was like, oh, okay, now, now all those pieces are starting to kind of fall into place. And so these little T traumas were for me relational, my relationship with myself, my relationship with me as an, an athlete, um, with, you know, the, my coaches, with food. Um, mm -hmm. I felt betrayed by food, right? So I felt betrayed by my body. I felt betrayed by the, you know, ballet teachers. I felt betrayed by food. And so this idea of victimhood really started to set in with that kind of trauma. And, and again, those little relational things that kept chipping away at my my resiliency, right? My ability to have this ego strength and um, and not knowing what that was, just, just really not, um, not being able to identify it, not having the language and the understanding for it until I finally did go to therapy and started working on it. And then all of a sudden, it was like, ah, okay, this is what this stuff is. Well, I would imagine it'd be hard if that's the world you're in. You're surrounded by everybody who's kind of normalizing everything. Um, yeah, everyone around you's doing everything the same, you know. Yeah, it was common common practice. And so that's what my friends, you know, my friends were experiencing, the people, you know, my mentors who I looked up to, um, the the prima ballerinas of the world in the world at that time, you know, this was normal. Um, and again, you know, for me, I'd look in the mirror and I'd say, but I'm not that. So I'm not good enough. And so I had that the dysmorphia component that came with it too, where um, you know, I I don't look like that. And if I don't look like that, then I'm gonna be terrible, you know, mm -hmm. or it must mean that I'm not perfect. And so you know, I'm just wondering for people who are listening who maybe didn't go through um, this kind of experience and they weren't, you know, ballerinas or maybe even athletes, yeah. if they're trying to differentiate for themselves, like, okay, how do I know if I experienced like little T's in my life um, and have them accumulated? Because I, well, maybe we, we could even take a step back and say, how do we know the difference between like a big T, like a big trauma versus what a little T's are. Because um, we talk about, you know, PTSD or trauma, um, you know, in psychology and maybe even differentiating out like the two so people can kind of have an understanding. Yeah. Thanks for asking. I, so for me, um, as a clinician, I define trauma as trauma is in the eyes of the beholder. It doesn't have to be traumatic for me, right? If it's traumatic for my client, that that's a little bit avant-garde. Um, mm -hmm. Clinically, the definition of trauma is something that is horrific that somebody has experienced and or witnessed. And now we know with, with vicarious trauma or secondary trauma, um, that could be me watching something that's happening on the news, could be extremely traumatic for me. Um, mm -hmm. So we're starting, we in the world of psychology are starting to expand this definition of what actually constitute as, constitutes as trauma. What we do know now is relational trauma. So again, a child who has maybe emotional and verbal abuse from a parent or um, grows up with a lot of yelling, 
has um, relational trauma with toxic relationships and gaslighting, that all of these things can develop complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which is different than a single episode. So typically we thought about trauma as being, it has a single episode. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, with more post 9-11 military focused research and PTSD, and also research with law enforcement and first responders, we started to see that, oh, complex trauma can be a lot of different episodes that have beginning, middle, and ends, right? It, it may not be a relational or even that the incidents are related, but somebody who has more than one big T trauma, right, could potentially have complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And then um, this idea of little T traumas, well, what happens to people when they've experienced um, relational events that they hold similarly as big T trauma. And so being the difference between big T and little T trauma. So when I'm referring to it in my, you know, in my experience, it was all of these little things um, that, you know, now when I look at them, we, you know, I don't think coaches for the most part, train children that way in sports anymore. Um, but my experience was, you know, we have a little bit more education around how we work with with kids. Um, but all of those things became, you know, these little T traumas that became a big trauma. Mm -hmm. And so for people listening, I think, again, if, you know, with without being hyperbolic, right, if somebody's saying this really shaped my worldview or this is painful for me, um, you know, it caused behaviors that I'm not proud of, right, or that are harmful, then does that constitute as trauma? And in, in my work, you know, again, my opinion, um, I say yes, that that absolutely, absolutely constitutes as trauma. Okay. Um, so, because I think there are new terms out there that people kind of hear and they go, okay, what's the difference between, you know, complex trauma, PTSD, you know, all these different new terms that are kind of out there. Um, and it can get confusing for people to say, okay, so what, what is all of this? And what, what does that look like if I were to go into therapy and um, get some help for all of this? Like, what's the difference between, you know, treatment for say complex trauma versus like maybe like relational traumas versus like PTSD? Yeah, and I don't. I don't think that there's a one size fits all model. I I really don't. Um, I think that I always say say to people I talk with, you know, interview the therapist, you know, or the psychologist. If it's a good fit, sometimes it doesn't matter who I am and what I know. If mm -hmm. if it's not the right fit, the work isn't going to work for that mm -hmm. person. Um, and so you know, some of it is. The ownership of you know the the ownership of the therapist to be able to explain hey this is what all of these things are and if that's important to you the client then let's look at what that actually means right there's a lot of assessment that goes into these terms they're not just flippant diagnoses I think you know complex PTSD is something that we're looking more at we still um, don't know a lot about it. We know that there there are a bunch of events that stack up that that each one could be a standalone 
event that's traumatic but doesn't necessarily cause post-traumatic stress disorder, D being affecting your daily life and living or your functioning, right? Um, so it may not classify as a standalone as something that would cause PTS or PTSD, but when we put them all together, right, it starts to, to have that same effect. And, and so, you know, for my work, I, I really distinguish with post-traumatic stress. When some something happens that's either big T or, or little T trauma, something happens and the client says, this was traumatic for me, the body actually will respond with post-traumatic stress. That's a normal response. And the idea is, does that dissipate over time? Right. And does it affect or how does it affect somebody's level of functioning? So when we start to say, hey, this is not necessarily post-traumatic stress, but there's this disordered component, we're really talking about how that's affecting their someone's functioning. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing with with all of the little T traumas that stack up. Do they start to affect your functioning? And then I think to answer your question, uh, sorry, it's such a long-winded answer. No, it's a big question. So <laughs> thank you for trying to break it down. Yeah, I, I think, you know, to answer your question, there's a lot of different kinds of therapies and, and models of therapies that work. And so some of it is what what does the client gravitate toward? Do they like skills-based models. And so we would look at something like cognitive behavioral or, or dialectical behavioral, um, CBT or DBT, that's skills-based. Um, mm -hmm. Does that help alleviate, you know, the trauma symptoms, right? Or the effects of trauma? Um, other people have done a lot of therapy and they want to move into something where we look at somatic processing or EMDR, how the body holds the memory of the trauma and how we feel about the memory emotionally and also in our body physically. And that's a different kind of therapy. So that works for some people where mm -hmm. they come in and, and they um, really want to work with what's going on in their body. They have more physical symptoms maybe, um, or they feel it differently in their body than other people. So that may work for some people. Um, there's a theory called cognitive processing therapy or CPT, and that's a very linear model. It's short. It's seven to 12 sessions, typically 12. Um, it's very regimented. It has a system and we know it works. There's a lot of empirically based information and that works for some people who like homework and they, they like, um, to have that kind of accountability. So I think that th there's so many different approaches on how we work with trauma. It's for me, it's the relational piece, finding somebody that, that, you know, for me that I could trust because mm -hmm. I felt like it was so much. And again, I know it sounds narcissistic or self-absorbed. I think I was, I was so in the throes of how I was feeling in my body and that guilt and shame component of it that I didn't I didn't understand what I needed or what would be good for me and I needed somebody I could trust and that was the best place to start and through that work of really starting with skills of I just want to feel better and mm -hmm. and I really went into therapy going I don't even know what I need I don't know what I want I just want to feel better and I do not want to give up the eating disordered behaviors <laughs> 
And so it took me some time to be willing to, one, trust the process, two, trust my therapist and do the work. I am the worst client ever. <laughs> she, you know, she would say, here, here's the homework, here's the workbook. And I'm like, I don't want to do it because it was so painful for me to actually have to really look at it. So it's like, no, 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 I'm okay. We'll just talk about it. And eventually she got wise to, to my antics and finally started to call me out on my own garbage and, you know, it, and had some really, what I, what I say lovingly and, and endearing some, just some moments with me where um, I remember I was ruminating, going around and around and around on something that, that really didn't have a whole lot of significance. And I had been doing this for months. So I would use that as a distraction. She'd want to talk, talk about these deeper level things and see if we could get some movement. And then I'd go back and I would talk about this whole story again. Mm -hmm. So she said to me one day, she goes, you know what, Joe, when you're done suffering, let me know and we can do some real work. And it was one of those, like, let me pull the knife out of my chest first. And I laugh when I say it, I tell this story all the time. And I absolutely adore my therapist who I still have, um, you know, and, but it, it, it was what I needed to hear in that moment, which is, ah, that's where I'm getting stuck. Okay. All right. And, um, you know, and, and her response was, you know, can we do some work? Are you willing to be vulnerable enough and sit with in, sit with it in your body long enough to do the work? And it took me some time to say, yes, you know, yes, yes, I can do that. And so I always tell clients, start with somebody that you can trust. They will tell you if, if, you know, if you need something more that they can't provide, you know, a good mm -hmm. therapist will say, you know, let's look at EMDR, let's look at somatic, let's look at CPT, you know, let's try some other things that may mean that you're not with me anymore, mm -hmm. you know, but it might be really helpful for you. You know, great point. And I, I love your story, right? Like, <laughs> and the fact that you said, you know, you didn't want to let go of your eating disorder, right? Um, because it serves a, it served a purpose for you, obviously. Um, and I don't think a lot of people really get that part. Um, and I don't know if you understood that back then, um, or if that was more in hindsight now that you're looking back. I think it's hindsight. I don't think I understood that it it did three things. It allowed me to maintain control when I felt, you know, again, I felt out of control. I wasn't out of control. I felt mm -hmm. out of control. Um, so it, it, it did that for me. Um, it um, allowed me to not have to pay attention to or feel what was going on in my body, whether it was injury, illness, or emotion. Mm -hmm. So it kept me out of having to, to feel the really hard feels. Mm -hmm. right? So it did that for me. Um, and, you know, I got a lot of praise. Mm -hmm. And so it filled my self-esteem bucket. And so, you know, I didn't realize it did any of those things. You know, I just said, well, this is what I have to do to be perfect. Like, what, what do you mean I have to get rid of this thing? And even now, um, because I don't, I, I think we recover and I think that there's a remission component. I also know for me personally that I have moments where I still struggle. And the difference now is it's easier for me to identify and go, ah, there that thing is again. I can lean into it and make choices that I know my body will not be happy with. 
and it won't help my emotional state. Or I can sit with it a little bit longer, be in the pain a little bit longer, talk to my therapist and make different choices, right? And sometimes still that acceptance piece is not there. You know, it's, I, you know, and again, it quotes, I should be able to do it all, right? And, and it's so unrealistic. And I think that that maps my, um, what's happening in my life in the, in those moments. And sometimes it still bothers me and other times it doesn't. It's just, I feel like I actually now have control. So I didn't realize that, that my eating disorders were keeping me safe, in the world. They were my coping mechanism and and it was my way to actually function as dysfunctional as they were. So I mean that's I think so important, you know, to to listen to is that you felt like you were in control, but ultimately what was in control was the eating disorder. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And now when I think about it, or, or again, when, when those moments pop up, um, there are these, these times where I say, you know, I'll, again, I'll say in therapy, I feel crazy. I know I'm not crazy and I know I'm not out of control, but without having those maladaptive behaviors and coping skills, I feel out of control and I feel crazy. And, um, and I use that word intentionally, right? That's how, how my whole being feels. My emotional self, my physical self, my spiritual self, everything feels off. Um, and so starting to have some language helped because I, I couldn't necessarily identify what I was feeling, but I was able to put some some language to it of, is it this or is it that? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's this thing okay, well, where do you feel that in your body? Right. And so for me, a lot of times was, well, I don't, I don't feel it in my body. I don't feel anything in my body. Right. So then it's like, oh, okay. Now we've got to do some work of learning how to be in the body, which is odd for a dancer to say, right. But that's part of what, what this maladaptive eating disorder behavior gave me. It it gave me the ability to hide, right. Hide from my body, hide from the world, hide from the perfectionism, mm-hmm. you know? And so that, you know, the, this was much later in therapy that I was starting to uncover these things and then, okay, now what do I do with it? Not now, now, so what, who cares? That was this idea of post-traumatic growth for me is, okay, take a deep breath. Now, what do I do? What do I want to do? You know, can it be different? Well, sure, of course it can be different, right? So what's that going to look like? Can I, tr- can I try that on a little bit and sit with it? Okay, I can. Cool. Now can I try something else on and sit with that? It was just a slow process of, of learning. Um, you know, and, and those were the things that drove me into wanting to be a therapist um, and, and really understand trauma. Originally, it was I wanted to understand eating disorders. And then as I, I started to uncover with my own story and what my clients were experiencing, it was like, actually, I really want to know about trauma too. Mm-hmm. That was the part that was, was beginning to really excite me. Right. Well, it sounds like your journey, you know, through your, your own therapy, um, you started to uncover the why of your eating disorder 
Um, cause I think that's, that's the big misunderstanding for people who maybe don't have one is they think it's, it's about the food. It's about, you know, dieting. It's about all these other things on the surface. And it's so much deeper. Like you said, it's about trauma. It's about control. It's about not feeling good enough. It's about so many other things. Um, yeah, and interestingly enough for me, food food definitely played a part, but it played a part as a, a secondary, if that makes sense. You know, it, it was so much more about, about the aesthetics and the pressure I was feeling. Um, you know, it, it's similar now with social media, right? Mm-hmm. And airbrushed pictures and, and, you know, how people feel now when they're constantly bombarded with images. Um, so it's it's similar in that sense where it was for me it was I was looking at myself you know four hours plus a day every day in a mirror yeah. <laughs> and, you know uh, right and in class and then trying to to figure how to decouple um, that perfectionism what I look like you know with the behavior so um, I thought it was about food mm-hmm. I thought it was about food and exercise. Um, aesthetics and and what I uncovered was it was way deeper than that you know that was sort of the secondary components to it for me personally Mm -hmm. so you know now um you know you're in your practice and um you know obviously you (laughs) transitioned over into being a therapist from being in, in the chair on the other side um which is great and so do you primarily work mostly with people who have uh, trauma or do you like, tell me a little bit, tell the audience a little bit about like what you're doing now and what your specialties are and all of that. Yeah. So in, in 2008, um, I, I started doing primarily therapy as my main source of, of income. Um, it took me another year and a half to finally let go of dancing completely. So I, I was one of those that kept threatening to retire for 10 years. And then I finally I'm like, okay, I've got to do it. Uh, my body is, is hurting. Um, so I, I started working with trauma then, um, went back to school um, to do more specific training on, on trauma um, and trauma modalities of, of doing that kind of work. And then in uh, 2011, opened up my own clinic. Um, and so now primarily I'm a PTSD expert. I, I got to work with uh, TED Global, which was really exciting and do an animation for them um, about PTSD. And so uh, so I, I've, I've been able, very, very blessed and able to do some really cool things since then. Primarily, my focus is trauma. Um, with that came starting to work with very unique populations. So I started working with um, military first responders, law enforcement with um, complex PTSD, and and uh, complex meaning not necessarily relational, but having multiple traumas, um, not just a single episode. Um, from there, got to do some some research and some grant writing, and uh, have really worked more on the in in the application of mm-hmm. using multimodalities to treat trauma, and then doing education around what that actually looks like. And so, for for now, that's what I I primarily do. I have a, a clinic in the San Francisco Bay Area in California. I have an amazing staff, um, and we do we we work with people that. 
are experiencing trauma. So from there in 20, 2011, started working with military, then law enforcement, and then from there, ICU nurses and doctors um, and refugees and immigrants. And then with COVID, um, we've done a lot more work with, uh, you know, first line responders. So that's primarily our, our practice. And then um, because we're in Silicon Valley, we see a lot of the high tech, high tech people. And so we started to see in about 2018 content moderators that were coming in with complex um, experiences and, and a lot of exposure to content. Mm-hmm. So I, we've started to see more and more of that. And, and again, it's just part of part of the area of the world that I'm in. But um, that's what I do. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this. And, you know, congratulations on such a booming practice and much needed, obviously. So, yeah. Um, any last final words, you know, for anyone listening that you want to just make sure everyone knows about or anything to share? Yeah, you know, I, I appreciate you asking and thanks so much for having me on the show. It, it's been a real pleasure. And um, I, you know, that piece of, of interview, the interview your clinician and, and find the person and it's hard. Um, it is really hard work and being able to have the validation of, you know, doing therapy and starting to heal, whether you're in therapy or not, whether you pick up a self-help book, a workbook, a journal, watch some YouTube, um, you know, starting is hard and it's, mm-hmm. and, and it's doable. And so going slow and asking questions is helpful. And so, you know, I always like to just, just tell people that it, it does, it does get better, even though it doesn't feel like that. And it's not, it's not easy. It's a hard process. And so giving, you know, giving, giving yourself credit, right. For, mm-hmm being able to even just be willing to explore the idea of what would it look like if I, if I was willing to, to ask for help, what would that look like? Takes, you know, takes courage and, and strength. Absolutely. Very well said. Thank you for sharing that. All right. Well, um, if anyone does want to find you or get help through your clinic, how can they find you? Oh, it's my, my name. Um, so on Instagram, um, basically on social media, it's um, at official uh, Joel Trauma Therapy. Um, but if you put Joel Melitis in, you'll be able to find me. And I know that you're going to drop all the links in below anyway. Yes. So, yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. So anyone who wants to go to the website or, you know, you know, find her. All the show notes will have all the links and you'll be able to find Joel for sure. So, Joelle, thank you again. It's been such a pleasure. And thank you for opening up and being willing to share your story and your journey. It's been, you know, amazing to hear. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks again for having me. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is given with the understanding that neither the host, the publisher, or the guests are rendering legal, accounting, clinical, or any other professional information. If you want a professional, you should find